Welcome to the new podcast, Leading by History, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history and educational leadership, changing our world and society one story at a time. Dr. Cornell West, born June 2nd, 1953, his family moved at an early age to Sacramento, California, and there they regularly attended the local Baptist church, and Cornell was always moved by the testimonies, by the exemplification of faith that he saw and heard from the parishioners. In 1970, at the age of 17 years, he enters Harvard University on a scholarship. He graduates magna cum laude three years later with a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern languages and literature. He attends graduate school in philosophy at Princeton University and was highly influenced by the American pragmatist Richard Rorty. After receiving his doctoral degree in 1980, he taught philosophy, religion, and African-American studies at several colleges and universities, including Union Theological Seminary, Yale, the University of Paris, and eventually Harvard University. Having a strong moral sensibility focused in Christianity, he had a philosophical orientation that was rooted towards pragmatism. He created a work, his seminal work, Race Matters, which was a collection of essays published exactly one year after the start of the Los Angeles riots. West was always political, but also was an academic, and he never hesitated to combine the two when necessary, from lectures to demonstrations. Cornell West serves as an example of black scholarship, pulling together the foundational beliefs of black liberation theology, political activism, and high academic rigor. Cornell West continues to be a respected name for much of the research and work that he's done over the years, and his writings still bear relevance as they tap into the stream of African-American consciousness and faith rooted in the tears and years of the past. This week's Leading by History will examine the foundation of black scholarship and address its level of importance. Is black scholarship necessary? Is it just a niche for a lower level of scholarship? Or is there something deeper, something heavier, something weightier? We'll be speaking with a professor from UVA in the African American Studies Department you don't want to miss this conversation about the origin, about the foundation, and the power of black scholarship and what it means to be a black scholar. Let's get ready for this week's Leading by History. Welcome to today's Leading by History. We're here at uh, the University of Virginia with Dr. Claudrina Harrell, and we've got an interview set up today in which we will be discussing the weight of black scholarship. So we want to go ahead and just dive on into the interview right now. Dr. Harrell, how are you? 
I'm good. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And um, we appreciate you making that time. We know Tuesdays are busy for you (laughs) and you're going clock to clock. So we thank you for making time for the show. We want to start off with you telling us a little bit about your background and what led you into African-American studies, history in general. And then, you know, just tell us a little bit about how you got to UVA. Sure. Well, uh, Claudrina Harrell, born in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, 1976. Went to um, Temple University in 1994, actually on a basketball scholarship. Mm -hmm. And the first class that I had at Temple was a class uh, entitled uh, Modern African History. And my professor was uh, Mario Beatty, who's now a professor at Howard University. And the class just really blew me away. Uh, I grew up in a household where History and politics was discussed. My father was a longshoreman. He passed when I was eight, um, but he was a part of um, the International Longshoreman Union uh, Association. My mother was a clerical worker, was a part of Ask Me, um, but, you know, graduated from high school. She did in 1969, so she's a product in many ways of the revolutionary fervor of the Black Power Movement, also influenced by the civil rights movement. And so I kind of grew up in a household led by my mom in which African-American history was discussed, uh, was celebrated, was appreciated. As a kid, uh, going to a Catholic school, I always loved Black History Month. I always appreciated when the teacher at the beginning of February would hand out that 100-question list where we had to find out who did what and when they did it. I loved it. I'm pretty sure my mom was not always happy because I would sort of cut out all of the encyclopedia pictures um, and, you know, outline and make marks on certain things, but I just loved um, history. So I always had a deep appreciation for African-American history. And uh, when I got to Temple in 1994, Philadelphia in 1994 was an interesting place. 1994, a year before the Million Man March, uh, three years before the Million Woman March, Temple is an important epicenter, I think, of black nationalism, African-American studies, very popular at Temple University, very big, you know, the soul scene, the music scene, very big. And so I decided by my first year at Temple that I wanted to major in African American studies because um, it provided me with just a great deal of intellectual stimulation and a great deal of joy. And Temple, of course, was at one point the only university to offer a PhD in African American studies. So I'm learning a lot from different graduate students. Uh, Mario Beatty, who I mentioned earlier, Valethea Watkins, who's also at Howard and Howard's chair now, uh, Greg Carr, were all graduate students. So being in that space at that time was just fascinating. And um, it was so fascinating that by my third, by my second year playing basketball, I had a successful basketball career. I knew that there was more out there. I knew that I wanted to become a professor. So I started actually um, scheming to find a way to graduate early. So I actually graduated in three years. Um, Mm. I finished everything up the summer of my third year. So I didn't actually play my last year of eligibility at Temple University. And uh, that was a tough call because all three years I was the leading scorer. So, uh, but I just knew that there was more out there and I knew I wanted to go to grad school. At that point, when I finished in 1990, 
seven, there were not that many schools offering PhDs in African-American studies, the discipline of black studies. And so it really became an issue of which discipline do I like the most? That's not African-American studies. I think there were like two or three schools. And one, of course, was Temple. And I want to say it was Temple, UMass. Um, those were two of the schools. Uh, and I knew I wasn't going to stay at Temple. So I ended up doing history. I ended up going to Notre Dame. I had decent, really, I had strong grades, but I wasn't in the 3.9, 4.0 area. So I was kind of like solid, 3.5. So I got into uh, Notre Dame. And um, at that point, I thought I wanted to study like black migration. And I got to Notre Dame and really liked it, but was once again, black nationalism was tugging at me. Mm. And trying to understand black nationalist movements, trying to understand the Million Man March, trying to understand uh, the Million Woman March, trying to reconcile my understanding of who attended the march, why they supported the march, if they liked or didn't like Louis Farrakhan, with scholarly literature on black nationalism that said black nationalism was nothing more than kind of an expression of the black bourgeoisie. It was kind of a middle class movement uh, or that said that these folks who supported black nationalism were sort of misguided dupes. And so that moved me to study the Marcus Garvey movement. And I became fascinated with the Garvey movement, but also fascinated with the Garvey movement's development in the urban South, looking at the South and looking at its popularity in places like Norfolk and Newport News and Miami, Florida and Jacksonville, Florida and New Orleans, Louisiana, and trying to understand and why these African-American Southerners in the 19-teens, late 19-teens, 1920s, uh, supported Garveyism, supported Black nationalism, and how what he was saying about the importance of Black pride, the importance of economic uh, self-determination and cultural self-definition coincided with what they already thought and what they already believed in terms of the abilities of, of Black people to move individually and collectively toward freedom. That's a powerful journey, and I think that the things that guide us, that shape our journey, mm-hmm. are sometimes the things we end up coming back to at some point towards the right. end of our journey. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm always looking at the ways in which African Americans, under a variety of organizations, attempt to carve out a space of cultural, economic, or intellectual autonomy. And so even at the University of Virginia and my work on the history of African Americans here and really the creation of Black Studies, I mean, Black Studies is very much the intellectual manifestation of a group of young people who are committed to intellectual rigor, but also committed to thinking critically about how do we advance the Black liberation struggle. And so in some ways that hasn't that hasn't stopped. Right now I'm working on a book on the history of African American gospel music from 1968 to basically 1994, Mm. uh, the beginning of, I think, the internet revolution where you have to study music just in a different way and in a way I wasn't willing to do it. But this book even is very much about African-American gospel artists trying to find a space of autonomy, trying to advance an art form that's rooted in the black community, uh, trying to deal with an industry that does not always move in the interest of black artists. And so some of the themes even in that book are revisiting themes in earlier mm-hmm. work. So I'm I'm interested in how black people move and groove right. within the context of a white supremacist culture. Mm, powerful. So as we delve into the meat of our conversation, my question would be, how would you define black scholarship? Does it need defining? 
Definitions are important because we need to be clear sometimes about what we are not. (laughs) Uh, So for me, my definition of black scholarship is very much connected to Vincent Harding's definition of the black scholar or the vocation of the black scholar. In 1974, Vincent Harding, the historian Vincent Harding, who was with the Institute for the Black World, wrote an important piece called, you know, the vocation of the black scholar. And one of the things that he said is the, you know, the vocation of the black scholar is to speak truth to power, mm. to open oneself up and the community up to the voices of the ancestors, to move with vigor and great imagination, and to do the kind of work. And that's just not writing, but to do the kind of writing, to do the teaching, to do the public outreach that advances humanity. Mm. And so for me, black scholarship consists of teaching, it consists of research and and publications, it consists of service to your discipline, Africana studies, black studies, service to the institution that you may be affiliated with, and also service to the community. So for me, living in Charlottesville, Virginia, teaching at the University of Virginia, scholarship means my publications, it also means my teaching in the field of Africana studies, black studies, but also history, and it also also means um, public outreach. And for me, you know, I just finished teaching two big lectures back to back. For me, a big part of scholarship is teaching. You know, it is important to train the next generation, to learn from the next generation. And to me, at the heart of black scholarship is also intergenerational exchange, Mm. where you're teaching people that are younger than you, but you're also allowing yourself to be taught by them. I don't have a lot for scholars who don't teach. Uh, Teaching is critical because I wouldn't be talking to you and I would have never uh, become a scholar if I didn't have teachers at Temple who invested in me, who invested into my well-being, who told me, yeah, basketball is cool, but there's something else out there for you. You know, I think when you're considered halfway smart or you can put two and two together, you know, usually depending on like where you're coming from and, you know, your sometimes cultural capital, you know, you're told you can be a doctor or you can be a lawyer or you can be a you know a teacher but it was at temple where there were these graduate students in african-american studies say you ever thought about going to grad school you ever Mm. thought about getting your phd maybe in history or african-american studies or one of the sort of humanistic disciplines i would have never become who I am without those folks making critical interventions and folks who said, oh, you, you all getting ready to leave um, Philly and you're going to UMass, going to play UMass, you're going to Amherst, stop by the Afro-American Studies Department. So by the time I'm in my second and third year, my coach has, has grown accustomed to me asking during our basketball trips to take me to a museum or to take me, you know, to the Afro-American studies department. And I know they think I'm like, they're like, this kid is weird. I mean, this she's weird. Um, But that wouldn't have happened naturally without a community of people encouraging me, saying, okay, you're reading for class, you got this class, but John Henry Clark is coming to speak. Let's go see him. You know, Marimba Ani is coming to speak. Let's go see him. Cornell West is coming to speak. Let's go see him. Oh, Temple is cool. 
Um, but let's go down to U- University of Pennsylvania because, you know, Farrah Jasmine Griffin is there and Houston Baker is there. And so it's like people opening up this uh, this intellectual world to, to you. So for me, scholarship is making sure that I do that for the next generation. Mm. So scholarship is not just publishing because on some fronts, at least the books I write, I don't know how many people are going to actually read them anyway. Uh, I do film as well uh, for the past, since 2013, I've been working on these short experimental films with my colleague Kevin Everson in the art department. And these films look at the black, really black student experience uh, at the University of Virginia in the post-civil rights period so we've we've shot like we've done like eight films and they played at the berliner national film festival the new york international film festival Mm. chicago international film festival virginia international film festival they played whitney museum national gallery of art they played widely domestically and um internationally and so part of my scholarship is that artistic work but part of my scholarship is if someone in the community says will you show your film on the first floor african americans to integrate uva's athletic department and one of those folks, Kent Merritt, is actually a native of Charlottesville. And I go to the community and show that, and it's community people and folks who know about that experience. In some ways, that means just as much to me as playing a film at Whitney Museum. So part of scholarship is finding different forms to communicate ideas, but also discovering different forms for dissemination. So why is there a need for black scholarship specifically? Why do we need to have a niche for that particular area of Africana studies or or black studies? Why not just deal in scholarship? Doesn't that allow African-Americans, black folk around the world to be able to say the bar is the same? You know, no matter where I go, I'm a scholar as opposed to I'm a black scholar or unpack that for me. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think um, black scholarship, as I understand black scholarship, is rooted in my understanding of black studies and the specific intellectual, social, cultural, and intellectual mission of black studies. So black studies is a discipline that's institutionalized in the white academy in the 1960s, 1970s, emerges out of the black power movement, and has since then developed its own traditions, its own methodologies, its own politics. And so the purpose and the intention of black studies is not the same as the purpose and the intention of history. It is not concerned with just writing books in isolation for a group of scholars, but it is concerned with the production of knowledge within the context of community. It is concerned with being transdisciplinary. It is concerned with, it it embraces multiple methods, but it is also um, concerned about the liberation of humanity. And black scholarship in many ways has always carried that energy. It's the energy of David Walker. It's the energy of Mariah Stewart. It's the energy of W.B. Du Bois. It's the energy of um, Ida B. Wells. You know, Ida B. Wells' intellectual project confronting the institution of lynching, confronting uh, negative images and stereotypes of African-American men and women, hers is a liberatory project. So I embrace a liberatory project, but a humanistic project that emerges out of a black tradition. Mm. 
that a black tradition that has a message for the world. When W. Du Bois and the Souls of Black Folks says the Negro has a message for the world, what he's saying is there's something specific about our experience. There's something specific mm-hmm. about our experience of oppression. Mm-hmm. There's something specific about the communities that we've created. There's something specific about our ethical and moral values. There's something specific of how we think about economics and culture and politics. So that has a liberating force, a humanizing force that can transform the world, which is why you can hear certain you which is why you can hear, you know, you can hear certain things like we shall overcome across the world. So why would you want to move away from that tradition that may seem particularistic, but in many ways has a more universal humanistic reach. So also for me, black scholarship is not limited. It's not something that's particular. It's not something that is um, on the side, but it's something that can generate new force and new life in the world. So it's like if you have a message that's particular, but you think that it can solve something, that it has transformative power, why would you um, why would you not embrace it? Mm. So for me, when I think about black scholarship, I think about the black studies tradition, and I think about what that tradition means. I think about the black colleges. So at their very inception, when you think about black colleges, when you think about black colleges being created, you know, populated by former slaves former enslaved people, I should say, they have a particular mission, a particular mission that many white universities have now taken up. So when you think about white universities and when they say things like, oh, we need to think about our relationship to the community in a larger world, Mm -hmm. black schools been thinking about that from the (laughs) get-go. You know, so it's like, um, that's not new. So in some ways, we've led the way. You know, it's like when somebody comes out of slavery, when you think about enslaved African-Americans and the demands that they make on land and and property and economics, you know, you don't know. You have a particular idea of property when you've been property. Mm. You know, it's like, Mm. so for me... Yeah, I'm a I'm a black scholar. I do black studies, and I don't feel that there's anything parochial about that. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think sometimes it requires a rigor that other disciplines don't require. Mm. I mean, you have to read everything. You have to engage everything. Mm. Oftentimes, when you do black studies, you have to think transnationally. You know, I'm thinking about when I did work on Garvey. I'm thinking about the United States. I'm thinking about, first of all, him being born 1887 in St. Anne's, Jamaica. I'm thinking about all the places that he traveled before he got to the United States, Europe, uh, Latin America, the Caribbean. You know, it's like, so to do black scholarship, to be a black, to do black studies, it requires, um, it requires a certain level of rigor mm. that even terms like interdisciplinary don't fully capture. Powerful thoughts. What we're going to do is we're going to take a brief break. And we'll be right back.
All right, welcome back. We're on the second half of the show, and you really gave us some things to think about. You contextualized some of the power and the ideological base of of what it means to be a black scholar and black scholarship. And I would hope that this interview would move those that may not be African Americans. Mm-hmm to move into black scholarship. And that does exist. I have seen Mm -hmm. some from other segments of the racial makeup Mm -hmm. of the community to move into this area and really pour their their passion and their love into it. Mm -hmm. So I think that the way that you capsulized such a long tradition was powerful Mm -hmm. to make us really think about the concept of, of black scholarship. Who are your influences in black scholarship? Who has influenced your your geopolitical, social, religio <laughs> uh, framework and the way that you approach what you do? You know, I think the influence is collective and individual. So on the collective tip, coming out of African-American studies and black studies, mm-hmm. uh, the people who influenced me are that generation of black students and black faculty who fought for the creation of black studies Mm. in the 1960s and in the early 1970s and who pushed for black studies programs at predominantly white colleges but who also built their black studies programs on a much deeper uh, black intellectual tradition so The folks who influenced me are those African-American students, for example, at the University of Virginia, who on who in March of 1969, uh, 50 years ago, wrote a 17 page proposal demanding an African-American studies program and outlawing what they wanted that program to be in terms of history, in terms of religion, in terms of politics, in terms of economics. I often return to their 1969 proposal and ask myself, am I living out their vision? Am I being honest to their vision? Mm. Am I teaching courses that capture their vision of what black studies can be? Never confined to their vision, never um, just limiting myself to their vision. But yeah, I'm shaped by that collective group who wrote those proposals from places like Howard University and University of Virginia and Northwestern. In terms of individuals, Vincent Harding, who wrote a book in called There is a River, I read that when I was at Temple, had a profound impact on me. Uh, his poetry, the ways in which his poetic, excuse me, approach to history, the ways in which he attempted to narrate the black freedom struggle and connect the 1960s to the 1860s, the ways in which he was committed to creating a history, creating a narrative um, that made us feel uncomfortable. Um, but that also pushed us forward and that pushed us to not just provide a critique of white supremacy, but also provide a vision of a new world that we wanted to um, create. Heavily influenced by uh, W.B. Du Bois, who is probably, uh, not probably, he is my favorite intellectual, The Souls of Black Folk, which was written in 1903. I assign it in my Intro to African American Studies courses. I assign it in my Black, in my Labor History courses. I assign it in my General American Survey courses. And every time I assign it, I read it. And every time mm. I read it, I learn something different. Uh, Du Bois also pushes me in terms of thinking about form 
and the possibilities of form, you know, Souls of Black Folk, I think is the foundational text in Black Studies. It includes history. It includes ethnomusicology. When you think about the spiritual, it includes sociology. When you think about the chapters where he's examining the Black community and family structure and economic structure, Black Reconstruction, you know, 700 pages uh, of just hardcore historical analysis, but also deep vision, which it came out in 1935. But I found myself being deeply moved by also his work as the editor of the Crisis Magazine during his um, time with the NAACP. Mm. Those Crisis Magazines, which, you know, those those editorials that looked at black politics, that looked at black education, that looked at the activism of black youth. I mean, his range in terms of his scholarship uh, is just um, is just unbelievable. And so, um, you know, those are just um, some of the few folks who influenced me um, I love Greg Tate. <laughs> Greg Tate wrote for a long time for the Village Voice, a noted cultural critic who wrote, who writes a lot about music, black culture. Some of his um, books are Flyboy and the Buttermilk. He also wrote a, a sort of critical biography of Jimi Hendrix. But yeah, Greg, Greg Tate is another person who has sort of pretty much a, I mean, a profound influence on me and how I approach music. And so, yeah, there's just so many people, Charles Payne, Neil Irvin Painter, um, you know, Ida B. Wells. I find, you know, love reading that stuff. Angela Davis, another person who, when you look at just her intellectual output, you look at the ways in which every decade from, you know, the 70s to the present, she's written something that has transformed how we think about Black life, Black politics, Black culture, what it means to be human, critical person in terms of Black feminist study, critical person in terms of musicology, when you think about her work on blues women, and of course, mass incarceration, just She's one of those folks. If I mean, if you can think about someone, I mean, if you can, if you can do the kind of scholarship that not only has this profound impact, but that level of longevity, mm. you know, she's been relevant for forty plus years, mm. and that's that's just amazing. So she's um, definitely important for me. Uh, Mary Baraka also. Mm. Uh, Mary Baraka, you know, blues people. Yeah, just so many. Yeah, a lot of folks. Mm. Well, you you, you listed some heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I want to talk in a few minutes about Mm -hmm. the difficulties of being a black scholar. And I want to get there. So as we start to Mm -hmm. bring Mm -hmm. it down Mm -hmm. to our our closing moments, got two more things I just want to briefly discuss. Mm -hmm. But what to you is the weight of, of black scholarship? The difficulties, the challenges, the successes, the triumphs, what's the weight of black scholarship? That's a hard question for me mm-hmm. because sometimes I don't feel the weight in the same way that my colleagues feel it. The weight for me is I appreciate having this conversation. This has been fun. The weight for me is like that faculty meeting that I got to go to that's going to last an hour that should only last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's going to talk about the most unnecessary stuff when I feel like I know I have students who struggle with hunger Mm. and food security issues and I got papers to grade. The work, the way for me is sometimes the miscellaneous stuff. I'm doing my research, um, reading. That's not a weight. In many ways, that's a privilege. I consider it a privilege to be paid to read. Mm. I consider it a privilege to be paid to teach. I get annoyed and I feel weight when I have people that interfere 
with my teaching, mm. <laughs> particularly when I when I want to work with students. Uh, I think the weight is. Um, I think some people would say the weight of black scholarship is sometimes not being accepted or respected by the mainstream. It's never been a desire that I have. At the end of the day, I want to be a good teacher. Uh, I want to do my scholarship. I want to write. I wanted to get tenure, which I have. I wanted to be a full professor, which I have, because being tenured ensures that I'm here for my students. You know, when you don't get tenure, you got to find another job. But demanding a certain level of respect, if I write a book and it's reviewed well by the Journal of African American Studies, I'm happy. Or the 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 the, the um, black scholar, if it's not reviewed well or not reviewed by the Journal of American History, fine with me. I think there are some black scholars who sometimes want a certain kind of respect and acknowledgement, and I understand that from their disciplines, from history, from sociology, from English, uh, and that's fine. Um, but I don't sit and wait for that. And so I think as a result, I don't feel a certain weight because that will cause problems. Um, I think sometimes the weight is making sure that you're doing the vocation of the black scholar. So uh, you have to find some kind of balance. Sometimes you want to do research. Sometimes you want to go home and you want to read that book. And then there's a student who wants to ask you about a question who wants to talk to you about a problem that they're facing at the university level, who wants to create an Asian American studies program. You're a black scholar. You don't work on that subject, but they know you know the history of Africana studies. They know that you are committed to the work of black studies. They know that you're in, that they're in your classes. And so like right now at the University of Virginia, for example, where we have certain advances with African American studies, other communities of color, uh, Latin Americans, Latino studies, Asian American studies, it's been a struggle. And so a lot of those students who are organizing, they're taking, they take my classes, but they come to me. The way that a black scholar is to have conversations with those students, sometimes be honest with those students and say, this is not my area of specialty, but these are the things that I've encountered. And these are the strategies that I would tell you to employ. And you may have to do that when that essay is due. Or when your page proofs are due. And so those are some of the balances uh, that you face. The weight of the black scholar is August 11th and 12th. White supremacists come to Charlottesville, Virginia. Someone is murdered. People are injured. The university comes back. They want to respond. Professor Harrell, Claudrina, are you willing to co-edit a volume called Charlottesville 2017? Are you willing to be on this committee and that committee? So the weight of the black scholar is in academic year 2017, 2018, where I'm trying to finish up my gospel book, I agree to co-edit this volume with Lewis Nelson, Charlottesville, 2017. But I also am on, I think I, I stopped counting at one point, but I was on more than 10 committees. Mm. So the weight of the black scholar and the black woman is sometimes also, you know, they can check black and mm -hmm. woman, but also if you're doing work that's engaging this, these issues, you're asked to be on those things. Um, and so for me, it's trying to find the balance of when to say yes, when to say no, what's important. So in the interest of time, I know you've got to get back mm -hmm. to lecturing. If you could tie together two things, mm -hmm. because our historical figure for this week was mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Cornell West. Mm -hmm. Just give me a brief on 
the impact of what his writing and research has done to influence black scholarship. And then, you know, close out with a closing message for our listeners, you know, young scholars in training, uh, historians that are listening. How would you bring all of this to a level of closure? So I'm going to give you the mic and let you go ahead. So I think Cornel West is one of the most important scholars of our time, seminal figure in Black studies, um, Black theology, Black religious studies, uh, philosophy. Uh, He is, for many people, though not all, a kind of model of the public intellectual. Uh, His book, Race Matters, which came out in 1993, a year before I entered uh, the university, uh, or Temple University, had a profound impact on a generation of scholars working in a variety of fields, uh, including Black studies. And so when I get to Temple in 1994, uh, Race Matters is very much a part of the conversation, and people are attempting to make sense of Cornell West's rise, his um, eventual connection to the Harvard Dream Team, um, which consists, of course, of um, people like Evelyn Higginbotham and w- later William Julius Wilson, but also uh, Henry Louis Gates. But for me, Cornell West, probably the most important book by Cornell West for me is his first book, and it's Prophecy Deliverance. And it came out in 1982. And in that book, he talks about the the black prophetic tradition And he wrestles with, in some ways, his attempt to reconcile or to bring together his blackness, his Christianity, and his commitment to a sort of Marxist politics. Mm. And that book um, attempted to understand Afro-American critical thought. It attempted to understand the varieties of black cultural and intellectual expression. And it had a pretty profound impact on me later Uh, as a scholar developing, um, as a person who identifies strongly with the Christian tradition, but as a person who also found certain aspects of that tradition too conservative and against sort of the class analysis that I was making of life, but also a person who didn't want to discard that tradition. So I think Cornell West has a particular importance for African-American scholars trying to understand what does it mean to be a public intellectual? What does it mean to be engaged in and fight for a community? What does it mean to be committed to providing a critique of white supremacy, patriarchy, um, but also um, capitalism? But for me also, what does it mean to do all of those things and identify yourself with black Christianity or Christianity? Uh, And so it's very important. So for me, you know, I've read Race Matters, but Prophecy Deliverance um, had a profound impact impact on me. And of course, you know, you read the Cornell West Reader. uh, You're always listening to Cornell. You're always watching him um, on TV. Uh, but he, for me, he was very, very important in terms of kind of that black prophetic tradition, black theology, uh, black studies, um, a willingness to speak truth to power, even if it puts you on the wrong side of the aisle, even mm-hmm. if it means that you're critiquing the Harvard president or you're critiquing Barack Obama. And um, we can perhaps disagree on whether we agree with all of his critiques. 
But that critique, the willingness to critique, the willingness to sometimes go against the grain, the willingness to be a insider, but also sometimes you have to be an outsider. I think that's a model uh, and an example, even if you don't always agree with the content or the style, um, but extremely, um, his work is extremely important uh, for me. And I think it, it set an important, it was, it was a model. And like I said, we just had a, a conference on James Cone and black theology. And for me, Cornell West, even though, you know, there were moments where he provided critique of James Cone, but he's a part of that tradition. So I think it's someone kind of wrestling with politics, race, religion, and the public. Um, he he's he he has a particular resonance for me. And so, what are your your parting words for our listeners? What would you like them to walk away understanding about the weight of black scholarship and? the power of the work that's being done. I think it's important to understand that the weight of black scholarship is consistent and connected to the weight of being black in this country. And that I don't feel like our weight is exceptional or more heavy than the weight that my mother had as a Mm -hmm. clerical worker or my father had as a lone shoreman is that is 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 deeply connected and that we can't move towards freedom we can't move towards liberation uh, without each other um and so whatever we do it has to be rooted in community and one of the things i constantly tell my students and i think we all can learn from this is sometimes you have to um uh, let me rephrase this i was at winston-salem state several years ago and i was reading there an editorial in their student newspaper and the editorial said be careful who you idolize Mm -hmm. and as a black studies scholar as a black scholar as a black woman who came in the history department at the university of virginia and i was the only black uh, woman scholar i think i was the first black woman to get tenured here Mm -hmm. you have to be careful who you idolize and you have to have your own values you have to move at your own pace you have to have your own ethical system and not the system that's sometimes promoted by the mainstream because um, as Audre Lorde said you know the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house Mm -hmm. and so you have to be very clear on who you are and what you want to do but most importantly what community you want to root yourself in Um, and so in doing that you move with clarity I teach two large lecture courses most folks, and I teach a graduate course, most folks say I wouldn't be teaching three classes at the University of Virginia. I mean, most folks, you know, it's kind of like, how can you get out of teaching so much? But because my commitment is to the vocation of a black scholar in training students, teaching is not negotiable for me. That's a critical component of what I do. And the kind of teaching is Tuesday and Thursday, being with people mm-hmm. for an hour and 15 minutes, not, you know, just one day of the week. Because I know what I want to do. I know my vision. People sometimes ask me with uh, art and film, well, does it count? Will that count towards promotion? It counts toward my intellectual development, my happiness, and what I hope is the advancement of humanity. Mm. So you have to really discard sometimes the values and the ideas and the expectations that are imposed 
on you and begin to move with your own rhythm. Mm. Well, we thank you so much for this time. Okay. And um, it's it's been thought-provoking. Okay. And we hope that our listeners can really pull from this some things to inspire them and maybe also um, to, I guess, corroborate mm-hmm. things that they've already been thinking. Um, and uh, maybe it'll help some people determine their path for the future. So okay. thank you so much for being with us today on Leading by History. All right. And we say to you, peace. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Leading by History podcast, and we look forward to getting back together with you again on our next show. Until then, peace.